how to start and grow a B2B SaaS company. Welcome back to a fresh episode of BreakingB2B.com. I'm your host, Sam Dunning, founder over at Breaking B2B. And if you want to check out 350 plus past episodes, try our daily newsletter or apply to work with us, head over to BreakingB2B.com. So joining me today, I've got Kyle Racky. Kyle's the co-founder over at Proposify. We're going to be diving into how you can grow a B2B SaaS. Kyle's grown Proposify to 8 million plus in annual revenue. We're going to be talking about how you can find a problem that's actually worth solving. The first few steps you should consider when it comes to growing a SaaS company. How to know if you're on the right tracks when you're building out the business. Key learnings, mistakes, and main growth levers to hitting that first million and then beyond as well as some marketing secrets. We've got to give a huge shout out to Factors.ai. In B2B, there's a few harsh truths. At best, only 4% of your website visitors convert into sales calls, and less than 1% of the outbound account list ends up making a purchase. By the time people request a demo or call, they're already late in their stages of evaluation. Smart B2B companies don't wait for people to magically buy. Instead, they expand their sales pipeline by tapping into intent signals. Factors.ai identifies prospects showing buying intent on your website, LinkedIn, and G2. Prospect into high intent accounts at the moment they're buying. Make it easy for your team to generate revenue and get more from every dollar spent. The best part, you can attribute and track everything seamlessly through the Factors.ai platform. Don't miss out. Grab a free trial today and start maximizing your revenue over at Factors.ai. Kyle, welcome to the show. How are we doing? We're doing great. Thanks for having me, Sam. No worries, man. Looking forward to the to the chat. So first things first, when it comes to building out a SaaS company, what are the main things we need to consider to actually work out a problem that's going to be worth solving with our offer, our tool, or our software? It's, uh, it's funny because... It's now been over 10 years since uh, since I really kind of started finding product market fit with Proposify. It's about 15 years since I even started thinking about it and started to, to, to plan and build it. So it's it's been, a lot's changed. A lot hasn't changed, but, um, you know, 2000s, early 2010s was kind of when, when this journey started. So there's a lot more SaaS now. There's a lot more uh, competition as they say, software's eating the world. So, uh, you know, <clears throat> I haven't been in that early stage figure out product market fit mode for a while. Sure. But I think one thing that I can share is that uh, it, Proposify wasn't my first SaaS product that I tried. So I kind of made the classic mistake when I was running a, a web design agency of, you know, having an idea, napkin sketch, going ahead and just building something and, and uh, you know, I was paying developers really to build it, which in a way I learned a lot. I learned a lot about what not to do, but it's also not the smartest way to build software. And so nowadays, 
uh, you have no code apps and, and it's kind of easier to build working prototypes with Figma and those kind of things. So I would probably take that approach of build something really quickly when you have an idea that you can just get in front of users and potential users and show them. Um, but either if you're not going to start with your own pain, then that's where you really want to do customer research with Proposify. It was, it was the pain that I personally felt for many years working in agencies and running my own agencies was around proposals. So, uh, you know, I actually didn't do a lot of customer research early on. I really just kind of tried to build the product that I wanted for myself. Um, and then of course you get it out in front of people and you learn as you go. Uh, but I think that's a lot easier than trying to, you know, tap, like learn about a market that you have no experience in and just trying to build it all completely from what other people tell you. That's really hard. But it is sort of the classic wisdom of like, get out of the building and talk to people. Not saying that's a bad idea, don't do it. But it's a lot easier if you can solve your own pain first. Yeah. And that seems to be quite a common trend with founders that we've had on the show i.e. they've had a frustration themselves that they've stumbled into and then they thought hey i don't really think there's any big players solving this problem with a solution a piece of software a tool so i think i'm going to get out there and build it and build something to kind of fix this problem and what's really hard now is that so many ideas have been done and there's so mm. many softwares for so many different things that yep I've seen a lot of proposal management tools come and go over the last decade that they don't exist anymore. And I have to believe it's because they saw something and they thought, oh, I'll build, I'll build my own version of that. Um, but there's really nothing different or unique. So it's very hard to build your own CRM if you're going to just copy what everyone else is doing. Because why would anyone switch? So such a good point. I mean, like you say, it's these days, it's super difficult, in my opinion, anyway, to think of something that's almost new or different in the space. You've almost got to work out a way to differentiate yourself in those those crowded marketplaces, especially when you say CRM or proposal proposal tools like you folks are in the space. So, how did you know? Like, if you can cast your mind back to ten years or so ago when you, you founded Proposal in the first instance, how did you know it was actually a tool that was solving a legit problem not just for yourself but other people or didn't you was it just a case of i'm going to build this out because i think this is an issue and i think other folks are going to have the same problem that i face and find use and value in this tool or was it more of a case of i'm going to build it and see what happens it started with i'm going to build it and see what happens um because the pain my own personal pain and those around me was pretty well vetted because at the time so we were running an agency and i'd worked at agencies before that we wanted our proposals to look really stellar because we were a design firm. So everything had to look amazing. Obviously doing that in Word is very difficult. Um, even PowerPoint really is kind of hard. So we were doing everything in InDesign, which you know is a very designery tool. It's desktop software. So it involved a lot of emailing Word documents or, or emailing text from account managers and then laying it out in InDesign, sharing a PDF, having them make changes and all. And so there was a lot of process around it finding old case study images and all that sort of thing. So that was really where it started. Um, and I thought it would be a very like designer um, focused tool. But then as I sort of started to share the prototype with people and talk about it with other people in the market, I realized that virtually every industry sends proposals of some kind and they have different problems. Yes, they want it to look good, but it's really about the workflow 
the writing, getting analytics, being able to get it signed easily. And so then I kind of realized that this is a much bigger market and a much broader type of use case, which makes it easier and harder, right? Because what a construction firm values in, in proposals isn't the same as an accounting firm or, uh, you know, it, it, so many different industries send it. It was really when I started to get out there and show it to people that I noticed that it wasn't just agencies talking about this problem. Everybody was saying, oh man, I hate writing proposals. I have to write proposals, you know, uh, as part of my job and it's, it takes forever. And so there was real pain. And even though our product wasn't quite there yet, that, that sense that other people understood the pain was really what kept me invested in going after it. Got it. That quite often seems to be a trend, right? You think that it's just for a specific industry, i.e. in your case, web design agencies or similar creative agencies. And then you find out that that problem, in your case, the cumbersome journey of building out these all singing or dancing proposal documents, getting them designed, getting the case studies, getting all the nice images in, making them look pretty, et cetera, is cumbersome problem for a bunch of other different sectors too. And you kind of branch out. Um, how did that flow like what was your what would be interesting was were you doing all the were you having all these conversations before you went to market and started selling or did you start selling first and then that kind of happened along the way or well we we had this sort of prototype which was was very non-functional <clears throat> i mean it, it could save information and that kind of thing but it was it was very hard to use and um you know, I, I think I did like a couple startup events that were local in my, in my city did like pitch competitions and those kind of things. So that started to build like a little bit of local buzz around it, but we, we really had nothing to sell. So it was at that point that we started to, um, really invest in like having, hiring a developer to work in our web design agency who just purely worked on that product. And, you know, he and I together would sort of figure out what we needed to build in order just to launch like a early beta. And so we launched that early beta in around April, 2013. And even then that was just the starting point, right? So once we had like, okay, sign up for a trial and you can pay after 14 days or what have you, um, you know, virtually nobody was paying, right? Because the product wasn't there yet. It, it just didn't do enough. It was clunky and cumbersome and all that stuff. So it really required a lot of iteration over about 18 months just to get it to the point where, you know, we, we could have more than one or two customers using the product and actually getting value of it. The, the journey to product market fit kind of began as soon as we launched. Uh, and it's, it's a long journey for most people. And that's, it's arguably the hardest part of the startup is like some people never get to product market fit, but when you're there, you know it because we, we went from losing a customer, gaining a customer, staying at flat revenue of a thousand bucks MRR to doubling, tripling MRR every month and having it compound. That was when we started to notice the product market fit. And that was again, 18 months after launching. Got it. Okay. So you went into beta. Do you say you, you went to some product fairs to kind of get feedback on the offer? Is that right? Yeah. I, I signed up for like a demo uh, pitch competitions, you know, demo camp was one of them. That was the one that, you know, the, the first one that I showed, showed it. Um, yeah, got it. And then you, you had the product around for 18 months or so in like a beta version where people could do a free trial as people weren't really opting in to pay because it was still being built out and features being developed and 
prototypes mm-hmm. being signed off and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, is absolutely. That, gotcha. Is that something you'd encourage kind of aspiring founders that wanting to set up SaaS and see success <laughs> to do as well? Because you mentioned it took a while to find product market fit, which we'll get into in a sec. But is that a sensible route? I think that it's, if I was to do it again, if I was to build a product brand new from scratch with no prior brand or name or anything like that, um, I would still probably build for maybe two or three months and then I would launch. Um, Because really you don't know anything until you launch it. You can have your customer interviews, you can show your wireframes and all that kind of stuff. But the real test is when you put a product in front of somebody show them how to use it and then say hand over some money if you want to keep using it yep um a lot of people are afraid of that they're afraid uh they're afraid to hear that their baby's ugly but the sooner you can hear the sooner you can learn you really have to embrace people giving you harsh feedback or saying i don't get this this makes no sense this is useless i can't do it because x y and z uh, and I, I've known and, and kind of seen founders that will like tinker away on something for two years in stealth mode until they launch it because uh, they, they want to get the launch right. And, and that's the biggest thing is like the launch is completely irrelevant. Nobody cares about the launch. It is it will be forgotten an hour after you launch. So just so get it in front of people. Oh, man, that that cast me back. Like we've recently rebranded to Breaking B2B, right? And I, I was literally stressing so much about this new website, working night and day with the design and dev team. And then after we launched, I thought, well, this hasn't really done all that much because it's on a fresh domain. It's going to take us a while to build up the SEO. It's going to take us a while to build up an audience, build up momentum across multi-channels. It's like I've stressed out so much, kind of almost over nothing in the sense yeah. that we're going to build out anyway. And we've got we've got various audiences on other platforms. So it's it's funny how as a founder you stress about weird things at times. It's true. If you have a large audience already, then the stakes might be higher to get it right. But even then, you know, yeah, if if you're starting with like a very small audience, you can you have the freedom to do anything. So you can put ugly, broken, buggy products. That, that don't work in front of people as this is your test. This is, this is you learning. And it's so important to just do that and not to, to, you know, be precious about it. How did you manage feedback, Kyle? Cause I'm sure you would have got all sorts, especially I can imagine from creative agencies, everyone's got their own two cents on what they think looks good, works well, is a slick, a slick tool. How did you manage from kind of people's opinions? to then actually putting out what you thought was a general consensus from the market and then what you were going to ship out as features in your kind of let's say version one of what you brought to market of the, of the SaaS tool. Yeah. You know, I saved old emails, uh, of, of people, you know, investors and people like that who were saying, I don't get it. Um, you know, agency owners who are like, why wouldn't you just use Adobe? You know, I had a lot of people telling me that like, there's no problem. There's no problem here. So I think it's a it's a tough balance between listening to the market and also believing in your vision and kind of tuning out the haters. There's there's it's not cut and dry. It's not easy to do that. Um, I think we're so conditioned now because we've heard it so much. Like talk to customers, listen to the market. That um, it it can easily cause you to give up too quickly 
where somebody tells you negative feedback, well, I guess this idea isn't worth pursuing because three people told me they don't have that problem. Yep. So yeah, it, it is a difficult balance and you do have to be a bit stubborn in your vision. Um, you know, obviously if people are like, if everybody is universally telling you, I don't care, then that's an issue. But if you have some people saying like, oh, wow, I'm really interested in this. I really like struggle with this. Then you have to put in the time to really figure out what would elicit the response you want. And so for example, with Proposify, I was very focused on the design and the layout and sort of the, you know, browser based editor, right? Which is an important component. You can't really write a proposal without that. <clears throat> but what really unlocked product market fit for us was stuff like templates that they could just pick up and use within, you know, a few minutes of signing up. Uh, it was stuff like analytics, knowing where prospects look at your proposals, you know, how much, how long do they spend on each section and e-signatures, which sort of is funny today because it's so ubiquitous. Every, every tool has like an e-signature thing, but back then, I mean, we were an agency still faxing documents to get signed. Um, we hadn't even adopted DocuSign in, you know, early, um, late two thousands. So yeah, I mean, th there was a few features that basically took it from, okay, I kind of get it. This is sort of helpful to, oh, well, this is 10 times better than the status quo. And it takes time to figure out what those things are. Sounds like getting a healthy balance when it comes to getting customer feedback. So as long as you're getting some positive responses, you've got to almost drown out some of the negative stuff, I suppose, unless there's constantly someone saying that we nearly really need this feature or this isn't quite working how we want it. But if there's just one or two out of a decent amount, then it's almost at stage one worth neglecting. Is that fair? I think it was it Jeff Bezos or, or somebody like that who said stubborn on vision, flexible on details. Um, whoever said it, I think it's a, it's a good approach is like, if you have a vision for something, if you, if you spend enough time thinking about a problem and, and a solution, uh, and it won't leave you, there's, there's probably something there. So you, you do have to kind of be stubborn about, no, like I am pursuing this because I believe it fully. The details can change though. The, that's where you, re, that's where the market's really useful is in telling you, well, it would be so much better if we could do this, or I can't use it because of this. And that's where you really want to be flexible and pivot a lot towards ultimately achieving your vision. Got it. Helpful. Okay. And when it came to, in your case, funding the, the first version of the product, did you take cash from your agency or did you go out and seek funding or was it a mix of both? We invested a lot of our own time into it and um, a bit of our agency time as well, right? Because we had developers and designers in the agency who could help out with that stuff. Um, it's a means to an end. It's it's hard to really build a true product that way because you're always going to uh, make it a side project and you know put in, in a couple hours a week, which just isn't enough focus and energy to really make it turn it into something, but it's a good start. We also happen to live in um, Canada and especially Atlantic Canada. There's a lot of funding opportunities here with um, federal, provincial, you know, grant programs. Um, there's there's the scientific research and uh, uh, education. I can't remember the acronym, but it's SHRED. SHRED is the acronym. I can't remember what it stands for. Um, so there's a lot of 
non-dilutive options here, which we took advantage of, and a lot of Canadian companies do. I realize it's a little harder in the US because there's not as many of those things. Um, but we were thankfully able to not take dilutive funding for, for quite a while. Gotcha. Do you think that's a, would you recommend that to anyone that's building out a SaaS to seek funding? Or do you think if you can, you should try and bootstrap it or cash it off your own back? And if you look back on your own journey, do you think you might have changed something on that front? If you if you can code, then you're in a really good position because you can you don't really need to rely on anybody. You can build your product now. It's going to take a lot of your time, energy, and effort, and there's additional skills you'll need to learn. So if you're a technical founder, you have the luxury of not having to rely on anybody to build your product. Um, but technical founders struggle when it comes to like customer discovery and sort of more of the, uh, marketing and sales side. They're not mm. as usually, uh, they're more reluctant to ask for wallet share from a customer. So I think that there's skills you need to learn if you're a technical founder in order to really be able to launch and grow your uh, startup and at least get to product market fit or close to it with zero funding. That's one thing. Now, if you're a non-technical founder and let's say you're a subject matter expert or you're somebody who's you know, passionate about the problem, but you can't build it yourself, you're going to need to find some way to do it. So it could be bringing on a technical co-founder, which is hard. I think a lot of people default to that, but it's actually a lot harder than it sounds. There's not a lot of skilled developers who make good technical co-founders who are you know, anxious to build your idea, right? So. Mm -hmm. The, if you're going to hire a developer to build it, the money's got to come from somewhere. There's overseas options, can be cheaper. Again, you're probably more in prototype territory. You're not going to build like a really scalable product, but if it helps you just get that initial version up and running that you can iterate on, that that can work. Um, you know, the, the money's got to come from somewhere. If you happen to live in a, a part of the world where grants and uh, you know, interest-free loans and things like that are an option, absolutely take it before you raise investment dollars. But taking, you know, dilutive capital is not what it once was, right? We've seen in the last year or so with the economy and the recession and everything that VCs are not as eager to uh, pour a million dollars into a, a startup idea anymore in early stage as they once were. Yeah, definitely feels like funding isn't quite as available as it was come kind of 2020, that era. Certainly the last couple of years, it's, it seems to have shook up in the tech world. So we talked about jumping back a bit. You talked about you just knew when you had product market fit. What was it that you knew? Like, how did you know? <clears throat> we, we were able to, for quite a while, predictably drive traffic to our website and get signups, right? So we, we had sort of cracked that for the most part in terms of like, we were, we were good at SEO content and we were doing a little bit of paid advertising. We knew like we could predictably get, um, say 50, a hundred people a month to sign up to the product. Now nobody converted or every now and then we would get one person convert to a paid account. Right. Uh, and then they'd be gone a month later. So we knew that the demand was there, the interest was there, but we just weren't delivering. There was a few key things that we needed to build, which I touched on, which was templates, metrics, and signatures, which we needed time to build those things. But once we built them, and especially the onboarding piece and the templates, that was always the biggest hurdle, right? Somebody would say, well, I already have my 
proposal template? How can I get it in? Can I just upload it or drag and drop it? And that's very hard to build that type of feature. So you did kind of have to start from scratch. And then once you were up and running, well, it was a lot easier, but that hurdle of onboarding was very difficult. Once we cracked that through the use of templates, that was the month where we noticed we were going from about $1,000 in monthly recurring revenue to 2000 where we had we couldn't crack the 1000 for 18 months we were now doubling it in one month that caused us to perk up and say ooh something's a little different here and then when the next month it was 4000 and the next month it was 8000 we knew growth was really starting to happen and it was only about a year year and a half later we were at the 1 million a year mark gotcha and okay so you you were in the PLG motion, you're doing free trials. Before we talk about kind of a bit more detail about how you acquired those customers, it sounds like SEO, maybe some paid traffic, etc. We'll dive into that in a sec. Do you encourage any B2B SaaS to start with free sign up, free trial, whatever it is, as a route to get their hands on the product, try it out before they then may or may not become a paid user? It all depends, right? I think there's a lot of advantages to starting at the bottom end of the market and selling to individuals or freelancers or solopreneurs um, because they're generally very quick to try new tools, offer feedback, um, you know, pay $10 a month or some sort of cheap subscription fee. So it's a pretty good market test. Almost every SaaS company and, and the big publicly traded SaaS companies that we all know and heard of it's only a matter of time until they move up market and start selling to mid market and have an enterprise edition and that sort of thing. Um, it's a pretty proven way of, of, of growth after you've found that initial product market fit. Because the difficulty with small customers, of course, is churn is always going to be very high, which is always going to hamper your growth. And, you know, I haven't looked at, say, a company like the Calm app or Headspace, those meditation apps. They're all very low price products that sell to, you know, a high volume of, of, of micro customers, I have to imagine their churn is, is very high. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it becomes with, with the cost of acquisition, reaching a large enough audience in order to scale revenue very quickly with small customers is hard. Now, again, easiest place to start. That said, if you're, if the problem you're solving is an enterprise problem because let's say you've come from an enterprise where they had this million dollar or $10 million problem and nobody's solving it and everybody just sticks with the status quo because it's the only option. Yep. And you probably shouldn't offer a free trial for your MVP, right? Like you should be getting in there and working with like one or two or three enterprise companies solving their $10 million problem and charging accordingly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but then I suppose when you're going down that route, things like sales cycle time just shoots right up. The amount of decision makers you've got to get involved, and probably the fact that you're going to need a sales team from the off to to handle these discussions. Where I suppose when you're lower ticket, you don't need any of that almost because they're they're almost self serve through the website. But let's say that you take that. Let's say it takes you two years, right, to land your first million dollar contract with a customer because you've more or less been custom building it for them. And you've probably been paid for like a proof of concept. Like they're they're helping to fund that that build. Um if after that you go, okay, the product works, we've got two enterprises using it and they're paying us hundreds of thousands or even a million dollars a year to use it, 
there's your funding, right? So you can now take that and you can hire your first rep uh, or you can just continue to, to run sales yourself as the founder until you have a predictable proven model. I wouldn't be afraid of the long sales cycles though, personally. But again, it depends on the, the scale of problem you're solving. And if it makes sense to start high end, then a lot of companies have started there. I know Vidyard um, started as enterprise and they've kind of gone down market over time. There's no one way to build a startup. Got it. Got it. And just to go back to the template side of things. So you you went from kind of not that much MR to 1K MR and then suddenly jumped to 2K and then ramped up from then. In your position, it sounds like adding that template feature was the tipping point. Was that purely from just talking to customers that were already signed up and saying kind of what's working, what's not, what do you feel is missing? I mean, more or less, yeah, it was, um, I think it's, if you find that people will sign up for your product, but they don't continue to use it, then there's usually a reason. And it's usually kind of an onboarding reason, um, whatever that onboarding happens to be for you. <clears throat> so you need to do whatever it requires in order to get them up and active using it. Um, I always think that, you know, we put too much focus on the top of the funnel, like gener generating leads and getting people to sign up. We don't put enough on the bottom of like, why do people leave or why don't they even start using it in the first place? That's where you should be spending probably 80% of your time um, as a founder is really just looking at how do people use the product and what's keeping them from getting value from it. Mm -hmm. For us, it was an onboarding issue and template solved that. For somebody else, it might be, you know, they need to install a technical script on their website and they don't know how to do that. If you need to roll up your sleeves and get on a call with every single sign up and get them active, you can always figure out how to, you know, scale that and make it more efficient and more automated later on. But you should literally be bending over backwards for uh, for users who are paying you zero in their early days. So were you talking to mainly churned customers in that case to get that kind of feedback as to why they hopped off perhaps i was talking to anybody who would talk to me so that could have been people who churned most of it was just uh i mean one of the the, the easiest hacks in the world that i learned from alex turnbull from groove was send a automated email to every person who signs up to your product that comes from the founder that looks like it was written by you that says thanks for signing up to company you know to, to my product we do, you know, we, this is the problem we solve. So like reinforce the message of like, this is who we're for. I want, I would love to hear from you why you signed up, just hit reply and let me know. And just asking them, why did you sign up? Mm. We'll start those conversations, which then lead you to go, okay, whoever's engaged in answering these, Hey, do you want to hop on a 20 minute call and I can, you know, help walk you through it or understand your needs more. And like, that should be where you're living most of your life as an early stage founder. If you're not doing that and getting constant feedback from everybody, then you know it's going to be very difficult to find product market fit. Love that tip. Now, getting those first few customers, talk, what, talk us through kind of how you attracted the first few customers to, to get to the 1K MR and then 2K and then kind of wrapped up from there. Yeah, I mean, you know, we launched the website we even before we had a product we had a email sign up form we faked it so we made it look like the product existed but once you entered your email it would say hey thanks we're you know we're we're still building it but we'll let you know so we started to build our list that way i think i ran a small adwords test like a thousand dollars 
just to drive people who had, there wasn't a lot of search volume for like proposal software, but there was a little bit that I was able to capture in very low competition. Um, Otherwise it was blogging, guest blogging, which was, you know, a a very, very popular tactic about 10 years ago, not as, uh, not as useful now, but at the time it was like creating content for agency. So like I was a digital agency owner. I knew the pain and, and struggles they had and had learned some lessons. So I started to create content around like running an agency and selling clients and and that kind of thing. And then I started to guest blog and try to get it on websites with more traffic, Smashing Magazine. I once did a post for them. And so I'd find people who were kind of in that agency space, space, niching down really helped because I think our homepage said like proposal software for digital agencies, uh, which just made the marketing way easier. And then started to like buy, uh, banner ads on like a list apart and things that were very much like designer digital agency websites. That was just how we started to build like a sort of, you know, repeatable traffic and, and, you know, any searches were basically coming to the site. Understood. Okay. So initially it was niche down to digital agencies, a lot of SEO work, blog work, some Google ads, banner ads on relevant sites that that, target market of digital agencies to be hanging out on and how far did that go if you if you can remember back then like what what did that take you to into in terms of monthly revenue well that was just to build up sort of the initial base once we started to find product market fit and and revenue was growing quickly then we were able to start adding to the team so uh my first marketing hire was jen faulkner who's still at the company and uh, our director of branding communications so she and i would work together on content and social media and things like that um and then we added another marketer to the team who was kind of more of a growth marketer and did uh you know was more helpful from like analytics and automation and paid advertising and that kind of thing so that once we had revenue from the sort of initial base of traffic we were getting then we were able to start building a team and and really start to uh, add to the channels and start to just create and produce a whole lot more content. Gotcha. Breaking B2B is sponsored by Revenue Hero. Did you ever fill in a website inquiry form only to wait hours or even days to hear back from a sales rep? Then comes the endless back and forth trying to schedule a time that works for everyone. It's painful, right? Leads slip through the cracks along with a ton of lost revenue. Revenue Hero fixes this painful process for B2B companies just like yours, allowing prospects to book a time on your sales team's calendar instantly from the website. Behind the scenes, marketing can even route qualified leads to the best sales rep for the job. Hundreds of businesses automate their requester demo or book a cool workflow with Revenue Hero, including app cues, inflection, ultimate AI, customer IO, and user evidence. B2B marketers can see increases in up to 80% of qualified meetings booked. See Revenue Hero in action for yourself today at revenuehero.io. That's revenuehero.io and grab a free demo. And in terms of that revenue, what was like the next land landmark for, in your case, Proposify? And what were some of the growth levers that you pulled to hit it? <clears throat> yeah, after the the 1 million was an exciting time and and growth was still very happening very quickly. Um probably around like the 3, 4, 5 million dollar mark, 
growth started to slow. And that was when we started to really see that, well, A, there was just a lot more competition. There's a you know very large competitor who had raised tens and tens of millions of dollars and competed against us. Um, but really the, the thing that we, the thing that kept me up was seeing that even despite putting investment into the product and, uh, and everything else, churn was a very hard nut to crack because the people who left when we would survey them on exit, they weren't saying that they didn't like the product or it wasn't useful or anything like that. They were basically saying, oh, I don't use this all the time. I use it every now and then because I don't really have a lot of proposals to write. And that is a difficult, you know, it's hard to put churn reduction tactics in, if, you know, if they don't need the product. Sure. So that really put the focus on, we need to move up market. We need to sell to bigger companies. And I can say that today we, you know, we put all or most of our marketing and sales energy on bigger customers and all of our product energy on bigger customers with teams who write a lot of proposals, who never run out of proposals to write. But the process of, of going up market and of figuring out who is that customer and what is the positioning and what, how do we price it, um, that is that took years to figure out. And I think we've only just started cracking that. Gotcha. How long did you stay niched to digital agencies, by the way? Um, I would say by the time we were at a million, we were starting to broaden out a little bit into other avenues. And the funny thing is today, Proposify is, we have digital agencies, of course, who use us um, and even some large ones. But um, but our core like ICP customer is, it sort of breaks down into white collar and blue collar. So we have like large consultancies, which includes agencies, but actually a huge part of our uh, best customers and our biggest customers are in the blue collar space. Um, think, you know, cleaning franchises, um, landscaping companies, companies that do uh, parking lot maintenance, like very uh, kind of in a way old school businesses actually get a ton of value out of Proposify. And so that's become much more of where we lean than towards like the small 10 person agency. Yeah, yeah. Nice. And when was it that kind of that you worked out that it was perhaps worth tapping into? other industries like you hit that million you, you were niched down at the time into digital agencies when do you think i think this could work for other other sectors too well we, we were exploring early on um like after as we started to expand out of digital agencies our, a big growth tactic for a long time was actually putting template landing pages out there for seo reasons because there's a lot of monthly searches for things like you know cleaning proposal template cleaning proposal sample or example and so we would build all these templates for all these different industries and then just focus on getting them to rank. All of the competitors do that now. And it's not as useful a, a growth tactic as it once was, but that was how we broadened out. Really, once we brought on a sales team and a sales leader and we started to try to crack our positioning and our pricing model, which the pricing model was probably the biggest thing that allowed us to sell six-figure accounts. We wouldn't have been able to do that if we hadn't invested the time and energy in figuring out pricing and packaging. Um, but other than that, it's it was sort of looking at who was naturally coming to us. Once we had a lot of traffic and lead flow and, and deals that we were able to look at, we started to notice trends of who was buying Proposify and why were they buying us. And we happened to see that a lot of blue collar businesses that are still large, that have large teams, 
we're the ones getting the value because we're, what we positioned on, which is different than the early days is it's not just, you know, make beautiful proposals or write proposals faster. It's literally like get more control over the proposals your team is sending out. That's, that's the biggest pain that we solve for, for large companies is they're like, I have no visibility into what's going out. Sales reps are sending the wrong information or outdated content with wrong pricing and terms. I need to get control over what they're sending so that it's more consistent and more professional. Once we started to lean into that for our positioning, we, we were bringing in more of the types of customers that we wanted and, and much more profitable customers. Mm. Were you um, were you mainly inbound? Like when I say that, because a lot of the strategies that you've outlined, things like SEO, Google paid search, blogging, all that good stuff. Was it mainly inbound and self-serve through the website up to a certain point? Like, because I think now you've got an outbound, a sales team that do some outbound and stuff like that. Like, was there a point where you thought, yeah, we can go up to inbound up to this level. Now we need to hire a sales team to kind of perhaps go up market and then maybe branch out into outbound with those kind of certain points? I, I think we were premature in hiring a sales team initially because we had raised a round of funding and we wanted to put that towards... Um, selling that enterprise edition or what have you. Um, but we hadn't figured out a lot of the foundations in order to make that successful. So we were not successful at um, selling large deals early on. But in terms of just, you know, the growth channel or the the, the, the channel to get um, leads in the door, um, I had a, a natural bias against outbound. I didn't think it worked. Um, I didn't like doing it, but it was because I'm, I'm a marketer, right? I'm a designer by trade. Sure. Uh, so, I mean, even today, I would say probably 70, 80% of our, um, leads are coming in from inbound from G2 searches, the brand, the name has been around for a long time too. So it helps being, you know, within the top three competing solutions in the space, you get a lot of just inbound deal flow. When somebody's researching a solution, we do a lot of pay, paid advertising as well, <clears throat> but significantly a lot of large deals do come from outbound and scott tower our director of sales is a big believer in outbound he started as an outbound bdr up proposify and eventually um grew into our our head of sales and um and i've seen it work right like i've seen it's it's the thing with outbound is you're contacting people cold and you've got to do a high amount of volume in order to get people in the door and sure. a certain percentage will have the problem you solve and it will be top of mind. So you're going to book meetings, but getting them from, Hey, this is interesting. I wasn't really looking, but, I, but tell me more to sign deal. It's, it's just a longer cycle to do that. The advantage of outbound though, is that you can be very selective on who you pitch to. And they're also not usually looking at alternatives. So if you do happen to get somebody in the door, who's who's like, oh, I really struggle with this. Can you guys help? Um, if you can convince them that you you really will solve their problem, they're probably not going to look at the competing solutions. So there's a lot of benefit to outbound, but I like to think of it as, as you know, sort of the, the buzz term now, all bound. Very seldom will somebody in isolation come through outbound or inbound. Usually you contact somebody who has seen maybe something, some content online, maybe got retargeted with an ad, it's all, there's multiple touch points to bring somebody in the door. And I think that for most businesses, SaaS or otherwise, if you're not doing 
a combination of content paid and outbound, you're, you're not getting as many leads as you could be. You and I have a very similar mindset. It annoys me so much when I see marketing leaders, even CMOs, VPs of marketing saying outbound's a waste of time. The only way to do marketing now is to create new demand in your sector. And it's like such a, to me, it's quite a backward approach because like you said, inbound has its pros, but then so does outbound because you can handpick target accounts you want to go for and get in there early as well. Why would you limit yourself? And why would you just say one channel is not working when there's plenty of ways to do it? Appreciate if you're early stage startup, then you want to fine tune on those quick wins. And that probably is capturing demand with paid search, SEO, G2, Captera, whatever's relevant. But when you're in growth mode, I mean, doing doing all, all you can makes sense, right? Well, to that point, you know, like you just said, capturing demand. We talk a lot about demand generation, but most of demand generation is actually demand capturing which means people are already in the market for a solution. You're just making sure that they hear about you and they're in front of you. Um, true demand generation is making people aware of a problem they didn't know they had. And, and outbound BDRs are very good at doing that. Um, and that, I think, makes a very small percentage of true demand generation, which is why it's easier to just pull in people who are already evaluating software. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, we could go down a whole rabbit hole with that. I'm, I'm sure I could as well, but want to keep, want to keep the convo flowing. So, where are we? So we've talked about inbound, talked a bit about outbound, talked about as you've grown, it's been a bit more difficult to identify kind of what is causing customers to churn. Now, before we hit record, it sounds like you've overtaken the the marketing side of things for Prosify. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I've had two marketing leaders over the lifetime of Proposify. And uh, Nadia, our VP of marketing, who we're still on, you know, great terms with, she took a, she took a, another opportunity a few months ago. And um, I wanted, I, instead of just kind of knee jerk reaction of like, oh, okay, I guess I just need to hire somebody else. Um, I really wanted to take some time to just sit with the team, see what was happening, see what we were doing. Um, find some opportunities. And and what I found was that um, I think that there's an area where we can really focus our effort differently than we had been before. Um, and where marketing is, is, is my background and running an agency and everything like it, I actually am having the most fun I think I've had in a long time running this business for 10 years is really just getting to work with a team that's on the ground executing and executing with them very rewarding for me and we're starting to see some some results from it nice man and i know you shared some of the the marketing strategies you used back in the day but are there any that you're using currently to share perhaps some that you experimented with that you thought would work and didn't or some ones you thought definitely would flop but have been a hit yeah i mean the biggest opportunities i'm seeing right now uh, for our marketing is we 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 started this business being very good at content and sharing our thoughts and being able to like create thought leadership and we sort of lost our way i think over the years where it be, became very much about like seo only right so blogs nowadays it's it's kind of sad i think right now that uh most people most saas businesses use their blog as just like an seo tool 
because people aren't like subscribing and really reading blogs the way they used to. There's a lot of like email newsletters that people will get involved with, like follow an influencer and care about them. But blogs as a, you know, a chance for like a writer to express their thoughts is, is just not what it once was. It's about, Hey, there's this many searches for these keywords. Let's just like, make sure we show up on page one for them, even if they don't even come to the website. So I, I think number one right now is we, we're working on a content strategy and a content engine that's going to become much more about true thought leadership and growing our brands, personal and business. And then on the paid side, <clears throat> I also think that a lot of marketers aren't doing enough experimentation with ads. In order to get paid ads working really well, you have to test a lot of creative and you have to test them against each other. And you have to really look at like, at what point are we retargeting the audience with this message? And I found that there was just a huge opportunity to do that in a way that we hadn't been doing historically, where we were just kind of running the same creative over and over again. So those two areas, along with just working really closely with sales, that's the thing I find I found weird is that like marketing and sales leaders have this kind of, uh, you know, almost mistrust of each other where they're just not sharing enough information where you go, Hey, sales team, you're, you're prospecting this cold list. Are we, are we retard? Are, are we actually advertising to them? No, no. Like we didn't share that with marketing. There was a lot of just that lack of like collaboration happening that I think is natural that I've seen through many leaders. It hasn't just been anyone in particular that we're just getting way tighter and more in sync. Now, if sales is going after a particular market for a quarter, Marketing should be hand in hand with them, creating content, running ads, um, you know, helping them with an event strategy. Like there's just so much that marketing should be doing to help sales. And if it's B2B, you know, it's the sales team who ultimately tells you who they want. It's not marketing to like tell them. Yeah. Sales were like, we're closing these people. Okay. Marketing's job is to go find more of them for them. And there's so much you can do on that element now, especially with LinkedIn's capabilities, like with thought leadership ads, where you can literally boost the thought leaders, whether that's the founder of the business, sales leader, marketing leader, you can literally get the, their own organic content that's been performing well on LinkedIn that shows expertise and then get that in front of your target accounts, literally coming from the personal profile as opposed to before with a company profile. So it puts a face behind the name, builds more trust. Folks like Justin Rowe, Impactable, are talking about this all the time. So it's easier than ever to do some of this stuff. Um, so if you're going after, like you say, juicy accounts in your target market, why not get behind that? Because it's only going to help sales and, and make their lives easier. Carl, before we wrap, wrap things up, we've talked a lot about the wins. Any epic fails that you care to share with us that happened along the way that can maybe save a few SaaS founders or mm -hmm. aspiring SaaS entrepreneurs some, some time in agro? Well, I mean, I think we might need another hour or 10 to go over <laughs> the fails. I, I touched on one briefly, which was um, trying to scale too quickly, raising money and then sort of just going after a new market and, and sort of trying to move up market without having done the actual homework and, and built a foundation. So I think that's a big one because the repercussions of that were ended up being um, laying off the sales team after 18 months of, of lack of results. When, and it really wasn't their fault either, nor was it the VP's fault. It was we just tried to throw people at a problem. That became, over the a few years at Proposify, a really big problem that 
I had to work hard with my executive team to fix, which was we were, it was, it was still, uh, you know, grow at all costs, money and capital comes relatively easy, throwing people at problems. We weren't seeing, we weren't getting the growth that we were looking for. And so we went from burning $400,000 a month, two years ago, when we went through a round of layoffs, um, which was still pre recession, like this was, uh, early 2022 was, was when we did our round of uh, our biggest round of layoffs that we've ever done. Um, we had to really reinvent the business. We had to reinvent, you know, our core values, what we care about, how we approach things, how we don't just hire people every time there's a problem, just hire somebody. We had to work to get efficient. And last year, 2023, we, the business was profitable. That was the first time we were profitable since we, before we raised investor dollars. And that came about as, you know, starting to really learn where we fell down and, um, and work hard to improve it. Hey, look, appreciate you, you sharing that with us because not many would. And now we're close to time. So with that, Carl, we'll have to have you back on the, the show for a V2 at some stage. But really appreciate you, you coming on, sharing the highs and lows, sharing the secrets, sharing what worked, what didn't how you've grown the business. So it's going to be super useful for everyone tuning in. So with that, please do tell us more about how everyone can connect with you, Proposify, and wherever you want to send our audience. Sure. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on, Sam. And let me know when part two is and I'll be back. Um, you know, best way to reach out to me is through LinkedIn. I'm, I'm That's the, the platform I'm most active on. So Kyle Araki is the name. And uh, obviously, if, you know, if you're interested in the product, uh, proposify.com is where you can uh, go to learn more about that. Um, and also, uh, currently doing a podcast with a, a good friend of mine. It's called the Racky and Sims podcast, but we're actually rebranding it in a couple of weeks to uh, called Levership. Levership is going to be the name of it. So people can check that out if they're, uh, if they're interested just in hearing more of me. <laughs> Awesome, man. We'll put all of those links in the show notes and over at breakingb2b.com. And thanks once again for coming on. Got to give a, a quick shout out to our sponsors, Revenue Hero and Factors AI for sponsoring today's episode. And if you want to grab out the, the show's daily newsletter or any other playbooks and past episodes, check out breakingb2b.com. And a big thanks to you, the audience, for tuning in today. We'll catch you on the next one for more no BS, B2B marketing tips, grow your business and grow your revenue. Cheers for tuning in.